You are now entering the transit zone. If we hoard vaccines and if we're not sharing, there will be three major problems. One, it will be a catastrophic moral failure. And two, it keeps the pandemic burning. And three, very slow economic, global economic recovery. So it's morally wrong. In terms of arresting the pandemic, it wouldn't help. And it wouldn't also bring livelihoods back. Is that what we want? Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. This is episode four in the Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast series, aimed at giving you more in-depth information about the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic so we can all better appraise the information our political and other leaders and the media are offering us. And to give you a sense of the wealth of scientific research available about this coronavirus pandemic, if you'd like to dig deeper. Podcast one was about the virus itself. The second episode was about the pandemic. The third episode examined the response to the coronavirus pandemic in New Zealand, Australia and around the world. This fourth episode is an update titled Variants and Vaccines. The first two podcasts in this series were produced in early and mid-August 2020. The third episode in the series in mid to late October 2020. And this update in late January 2021. There's a new USA president in the White House with the avowed aim of curbing this global pandemic there. But that republic is still deeply riven, including around the very existence of the virus, its level of threat and proven preventive measures such as face masks, social distancing and lockdowns. The USA is speeding to an overall death toll of 500,000 citizens and beyond, underreported of course. Coronavirus infections are still spreading rapidly and widely across the United States, despite a slight easing in some areas. Their hospital infrastructures, such as they are in many locations, are buckling. Elsewhere, the situation is as dire, especially in the United Kingdom, but also across continental Europe, South America and parts of Africa and Asia. To be blunt, the pandemic rages on around the world. As we publish this podcast, the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre says the number of global cases stands at approximately 102,108,000. Deaths at about 2,208,000. Both figures again, well underreported. And now we have entered a new, partly hopeful, but simultaneously dismaying phase of this pandemic. The various vaccines are coming online. And... More infectious, more threatening variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus are emerging and in some locations becoming dominant in the community. While the vaccines were in development, the political and general rhetoric portrayed them as the magic bullet to see off the pandemic. Now that several vaccines have received formal approval and are in mass production and distribution, the reality is far more complex and troubled. The vaccines were developed and created at unprecedented speed, drawing upon already established relevant technologies. Now there are many challenges in the actual vaccination rollouts around the world, logistical, immunological, political, cultural and even religious. Some partly predicted, others surprising. It's unclear whether or to what extent the vaccines will actually inhibit transmission of SARS-CoV-2, how long they will induce immunity, to what extent or for which ages most effectively. There's still a lot of data to come in from the real world and continuing research to be analysed and interpreted. But one of the biggest challenges of all is structural, so-called vaccine nationalism, rich nations buying up the existing and future stocks of coronavirus vaccines at the expense of poorer developing nations. Vaccines as a global common good? Not so much. It is, after all, a global pandemic. Our guide once again for the Pandemic Primer podcast update is Professor John Potter, based in New Zealand. John is Professor at the Centre for Public Health Research, Massey University, Wellington, 
as well as Professor and Senior Advisor, Seattle's Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre, where he was Director of its Division of Public Health Sciences. He's also Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the University of Washington. From 2016 to 2019, he was Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Ministry of Health. John is one of the most cited scientific authors in the world and closely tracks global epidemiological research into the coronavirus. The Transit Zone Pandemic Primer Podcast. This time, variants and vaccines. John Potter, welcome back to the Transit Zone. Good to be here, Peter. Obviously, we needed to do an update on our Pandemic Primer podcast series because life goes on, doesn't it? And we're just seeing things unfold, particularly variants and vaccines. Clarify for us the terms variant, strain, which we talked about in our earlier podcasts, and mutations. I'm hearing them used interchangeably by scientists, epidemiologists, politicians, health authorities, etc. They chuck those terms around. But now that we've got a variant that is being more commonly used in journalism, just try and clarify all those different terms for us and what they mean. So variant and strain are used interchangeably. Think about plants. When we're talking about plants, they mean we're dealing with the same genus and species of organism, but that there's sufficient difference in the behavior or in the measured genomes. Here, we're talking about an RNA genome that they can be distinguished from each other. Mutation is the process by which the genome changes. It's the raw material of evolution. So mutations can be neutral or deleterious or beneficial to the organism. So thus, a mutation can result in no changes to the protein produced. And I suppose it's important to remember that the nucleic acid triplet code is redundant and that multiple triplets can code for the same amino acid. So you can get a shift in the DNA without a shift in the protein. A mutation can also result in a change in the amino acid, but no real change in the conformation or structure of the protein or it can produce a major change in the protein. Most mutations in nature are neutral or deleterious to the organism. A change that's beneficial to the infectious organism, here the SARS-CoV-2 virus, by definition is not good for us. I remember well, and it gave me some encouragement when you were describing in detail the virus itself, you told us that it had a self-editing capacity and therefore mutations of the kind that perhaps scared people thinking it was going to turn into a bigger monster than it already is, that it's inclined not to mutate perhaps as easily as other organisms out there in the natural world. How does that play into what we're seeing now? So as indeed we discussed in an earlier podcast, viruses can evolve rapidly, especially the RNA viruses and retroviruses. Many single-stranded RNA viruses reproduce their genetic material using an RNA polymerase that does not have proofreading capacity and therefore they have more frequent errors in the genome, more mutations. Viruses reproduce in large numbers, so there's an opportunity for a new version to emerge and dominate if it has an advantage over other variants of the virus. RNA viruses have approximately one substitution in one million nucleotide sites per cell cycle. The coronaviruses are an exception, and they have lower mutation rates than other RNA viruses because their RNA polymerase actually does have proofreading capacity and can thus correct the errors, the mutations that occur. Nonetheless, there have been several variants that have emerged. The earliest one of note was called D614G, and not to get too detailed, but it involved the replacement of an aspartic acid with a glycine at position 614 in the virus spike protein. That variant produced a higher viral load and infected more young people. It has a greater capacity to infect, but it's not associated with a higher risk of dying or more severe clinical disease than the original virus from Wuhan. The variants that are currently making headlines seem to be even more important, and there are at least three of them. The first emerged in the UK, another one in South Africa, and then more recently there's a new variant in Brazil. They are more infectious. 
The UK one, for instance, is about 50% more infectious, but again, not more lethal. The South African and the Brazilian variant have a change in the spike protein position at 484, a glutamic acid replaced by a lysine in this case. That's of some concern because it may alter immune responses and possibly the effectiveness of the vaccines. An important aspect of the immune response to both natural infection with the virus and to vaccination is that the body produces a number of different antibodies. This is called a polyclonal response. So there would have to be wholesale changes in the virus genome to completely disrupt the protection of a vaccine. But it's all still under investigation at the moment. The most important condition that supports the emergence of a new strain is just higher virus numbers circulating in the population. The higher the numbers, the more reproductive cycles of the virus, the greater the chance of a new mutation that can evade proofreading. Any virus strain that can reproduce itself faster will spread through the population of susceptibles faster than earlier versions. And that's what we see with these strains. Is that what health authorities mean by it's more transmissible, higher transmission rates? Is that what they're describing? Yes. The more infectious, they say. And then we ask the question about lethality. More infectious, more transmissible just means able to spread faster across the population. It might be because the virus particles are present in higher numbers in any one infected person and thus spread in greater numbers. Or it might be the capacity of the virus to invade human cells is higher. The result anyway is that instead of infecting two people on average, at least two of these new strains are infecting about three. That's a 50% increase in infectiousness. You can see that that doesn't mean a 50% increase in numbers of infected people. In fact, it's much more problematic than that. So if you think about it, instead of a sequence that goes 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, the numbers multiply like this. 1, 3, 9, 27, 81, 243, 729. So after just six unchecked cycles of spread, there are 11 times as many cases with the variant that is 50% more infectious than with the earlier variants. After 12 unchecked cycles, there's about a 130-fold difference. More than half a million cases versus just over 4,000. That's why we're seeing such a rapid rise in the numbers in the UK. That's why the public health measures and border protection are so crucial. Very early on with the new more infectious variant, there will be more cases, but the numbers would be relatively manageable. Once it takes hold, the numbers rise really fast. The current variants are not more lethal for any one individual, but you can see immediately that the more people who are infected, the higher the total population mortality burden will be. Even if the infection fatality ratio, which is about 1%, does not change. For instance, again, going back to those cycles, if after 12 unchecked cycles, we look at the numbers, instead of 40 deaths, we'd have more than 5,000. Well, clearly, John, many of the health authorities, the leaders have seen those sort of figures. That's why we're seeing, I guess, in Queensland, in South Australia recently, certainly in Victoria and New South Wales, the leaders seem to be much more spooked. Look at Morrison really backing Palaszczuk, one case in Brisbane and the lockdown instantly. So obviously it's spooking a lot of people. Before we leave evolution, I just want to try and understand this a bit better. You talked about survival of the fittest in Darwinian terms of this virus. What is the field of battle for that particular survival of those fittest? How does all that work? Because the broader background is that in the UK, for example, in South Africa, for example, and in Brazil, as a very clear example, you've got enormous infection rates already. Are they relevant to this evolutionary process? How is that occurring? And what's happening is if a virus acquires this greater degree of transmissibility, this greater degree of infectiousness, then you'll get this change 
in the R value in the population that it's infecting. So instead of this person infecting just two people, if the virus has mutated in that person and it is now changed, that person is now infecting three people instead of two. You can see immediately how much more rapidly that will spread in the population. That's the Darwinian selection process going on. It'll just become much more common because it can spread more easily. So when epidemiologists look at this particular variant, are they also examining in detail, and what are they discovering already, about the time frames now? We're talking about more infectious. Are we absolutely sure that it's a faster infection process? And if it is, is there a shift now in the windows of infection and the various timetables as they might, in practical terms, relate to the quarantine periods, for example? No difference has been described to date in the clinical course. But the quarantine measures do need to be strengthened because of this much greater degree of infectiousness. New Zealand's moved, for instance, to require a pre-flight negative test and then a test on the first or zeroth day of arrival and then quarantine and then tests again on days three and 12. So very tight observation of individuals. There may be, even so a problem there. If you had your test three days before, you could have uh, had a developing infection that that test didn't pick up, or you could have acquired that en route. Nonetheless, if you shut everyone down as soon as they arrive and test them and keep them in quarantine, and you make sure that you do repeat testing, you're going to have a pretty decent handle on what's happening. But it's it's scary, and that's why people are becoming quite anxious about this. I must admit to you, John, when I first heard about variants and the UK variant, the South African variant, my mind went to our earlier conversations, and I thought I was a bit sceptical, I must say, particularly in the South Australian case. I thought, oh, are they overreacting here? They have raging infection rates in the UK, for example. Is that masking or is that making them perceive that it's, it's taking off faster? But we are now in a position, aren't we, to be much clearer about that? Because they're more infectious, they're spreading more rapidly. And you can see the UK burden. The numbers went from around 20,000 cases per day at the beginning of December, more than 55 to 60,000 in the last week. South African numbers are also rising rapidly. That's definitely being driven by this change in the R value of the virus that's spreading. So when we use the word strain now, and we hear this day after day when we get our public health briefings, they talk about, oh, we're doing a a genomic test on this particular strain that we found in this particular hotspot location, and yes, we have connected it to that other infection hotspot out in regional Victoria, for example. When we use the word strain in that context, we're talking about, what, much more minor, much slighter changes within that particular strain of the virus. Those are the more minor changes that probably don't have a huge effect on the biology of the virus or the biology of the interaction between the virus and the host, us. They're just changes that allow the virus transmission to be tracked so that if you've had uh, an infection and I end up with an infection and and you can say whether one of us infected the other because the pattern of changes in that variant are very similar. Strains, variants, mutations, we all have to make those judgments as citizens ourselves to see what's more important than the other. We've described an epidemiological variant. Can we now switch our attention and more speculative, I understand, and more imaginative in many ways to the biological reasons? These variants we're describing, whether it's the UK, the South African, the Brazil, or the newly emerging ones which are inevitable, Biologically, how are they different? How are they causing greater infectiousness? At the moment, this is mostly guesswork, at least as far as I can see. The increased infectiousness is is an empirical observation. We're seeing it at the moment. It seems likely that the capacity for viral entry is higher and the replication rate of the virus is higher. But there's one intriguing further hypothesis for the emergence of the more infectious South African variant that popped up in a paper that's, it's a preprint paper. It's not gone through the, the, the full process of, of peer review. 
But that hypothesis suggests that of the more infectious South African variant, its emergence is based on a large number of mutations it carries relative to the background mutation of the SARS-CoV-2. This variant might have arisen by evolving in just one immune-suppressed individual who, because they failed to clear the virus rapidly, experienced prolonged viral replication in the body. And there are some characteristics of the difference between this new variant and the earlier strains in South Africa that, that actually support that idea. So immune-suppressed individuals might provide a richer replication ground than the average person. In our off-air conversations, John, you've talked to me about threading the needle, the virus, who increasingly we seem to be giving a personality to, even though in our earlier conversations it's not even alive in a sense, or it's sort of alive, it can reproduce. But it has to thread the needle within the evolutionary strictures, if you like. I guess a lot of us, most people will be going, oh, we've got these variants, more are on their way. It's the process of evolution's happening. We're going to get more variants. But there are certain strictures, aren't there, on how this particular version and even these variants of the virus can evolve and become more dangerous to us. The longer the virus stays in the population and the higher the number of people it infects, the greater the likelihood of a mutation. Add a higher proportion of immune-suppressed people, such as those with HIV, and the virus will have a greater chance of undergoing multiple mutations in one person. And as I just said, that might be what happened in South Africa. Once there's a mutation, its spread is determined by the capacity to infect and take over as the dominant strain. So yeah, we could see more infectious variants emerge. Whether there's going to be in variants that are more lethal or produce more severe disease is not clear. You can see that it's in the virus interest, picking up on your anthropomorphizing there. You can see it's in the virus interest to increase its infectiousness, but less so to be more lethal because killing the human host also kills the viruses that the human carries. And historically, we've seen some organisms, and, and one particularly really important one, the mycobacterium tuberculosis that causes TB, over time, we saw it become less rather than more lethal over time, so that it people held, held the disease in a chronic state for a lot longer, and thus were able, if you like, to infect more people. You and I have discussed acute symptoms of covid compared to the long-term, the chronic effects of COVID, and we now have the term long COVID. So people are saying, yes, not much change in terms of the symptoms with the variants. But what do we know at this very early stage of the variants' emergence about potential chronic effects, the chronic symptoms? We don't. It's partly because they've emerged so recently, but that sort of information will become available. There are people doing studies on people with long covid and there will be links back to the genomic variant that they were infected with. And we will eventually, probably not all that far in the future, know whether these variants are not just more infectious, but have other deleterious consequences as well. SARS-CoV-2 is already pretty dire. It already invades many parts of the human body. It gets into various vascular situations, the brain, the heart, the liver, the kidney, etc. Is it possible that as it mutates, it could actually turn into something even more devastating? Is that possible within the current situation? It's certainly possible, but it's pure speculation. John, you alluded earlier to children, and I am seeing reports in journalism internationally that more children are being infected. It's already a bit of a, a moot point, isn't it, about children generally and being infected, the viral loads they carry, how they infect their parents and other adults. But I am seeing reports that these variants are infecting more children. Am I right in understanding that? Yeah, that's what we actually saw with the D614G, which was the first major variant that was described. There is a, a higher incidence of infection in children. The significance of that is not yet clear, at least to me. You're in the Transit Zone for a Pandemic Primer podcast series update. I'm Peter Clark with Professor John Potter in Nelson on the South Island of New Zealand. 
John, vaccines. Of course, that's the great hope, and it's certainly almost instant mythology that this is the beginning of the end. As the vaccines come online, we just get the jab. Everything's going to be all right. When we had our earlier conversations, of course, the vaccines were still in the race, weren't they? And we had a quick look at the different sorts of vaccines. Since then, three or four have come to the fore, and some have been approved. Could you just go back and a bit of revision here, I guess, just quickly describe again the different sorts of styles of vaccines that we're looking at that are already on the market. AstraZeneca, the Oxford one, we've got Pfizer and Moderna, those sort of ones. They're all slightly different and have different ways of operating. Basically, a vaccine involves exposing the immune system, as we discussed earlier, to a part of the virus or a killed, inactivated virus or a weakened virus, which is usually called attenuated, in order to produce an immune response that will then rise to the challenge and eliminate the real virus and the person's exposed. The earliest stages of vaccine development involve choosing the modality for the vaccine, establishing its safety, trying several doses to determine antibody response in healthy humans. And what we look for is, a, is the evidence of a robust production of neutralizing antibodies. The example, Moderna vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine produced neutralizing antibodies similar to those seen in patients recovering from the SARS-CoV-2. The rapid pace of development of vaccines against this virus has been enabled by two things. Prior knowledge of the role of the spike protein in coronavirus pathogenesis and evidence that neutralizing antibodies against the spike protein are important for immunity. Further, there have been substantial advances in nucleic acid vaccine technology, which allows the creation of vaccines and the manufacture of thousands of doses once the genetic sequence is known. And as we talked earlier, the genetic sequence for the SARS-CoV-2 virus was actually made available very early in the pandemic. The historical approach to vaccination has involved the use of weakened pathogens or fragments of the proteins or sugars on their surface, known as antigens. They're given as injections to train the immune system to recognize a foreign invading organism. RNA vaccines carry only the directions for producing the organism's proteins wrapped in tiny little lipid particles. The aim is that they can find their way into the body's cells, induce those cells to produce the antigens, which then provoke the immune response against what are recognized now as foreign proteins. So many of the early vaccines, including the, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines are based on the RNA that encodes the spike protein or its receptor binding domain. And there are several hundred other vaccines in various stages of development. But the RNA ones took off rapidly because of that huge improvement in technology and that amazing capacity to, to run through this whole process much quicker. Both Pfizer and Moderna are now testing mutations in the UK B.1.1.7 variant, the B117 variant, and in the one that originated in South Africa to see whether they weaken the performance of the vaccines. And there is a paper, which, which hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, published just a week ago, which found the mutation known as N501Y, which has been identified in both the South African and the UK variant, did not alter the activity of antibodies produced by people who'd been vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, at least. Data on other mutations and vaccines are expected soon. At the moment, we've got vaccines that function against the original variant. And to date, the evidence suggests that they will be just as functional against at least the variants we've seen so far. One caveat is that lab measurements of antibody activity is not always indicative of the way vaccines work in the real world. Of course, as you've seen clearly yourself, John, efficacy is sitting at the centre of a bit of a political battle here in Australia, included at the moment. Interesting, AstraZeneca has been vaunted as having about 60%, roughly, that efficacy. There apparently was some sort of, what, misstep during the trialling where they accidentally gave a half dose than a full dose, and that seemed to produce an outcome of 90%. Pfizer's claiming around about 90%. 
We're getting arguments in our own society here from people like Raina McIntyre, who's an epidemiologist, a leading one, who's been very vocal. She's saying that if we go with AstraZeneca generally, and we are because we're making it in Australia, it's much cheaper, it can be stored much more easily than this Pfizer, it doesn't need really cold storage, that in fact we won't get vaccinated herd immunity in Australia. She's put that out there very clearly. So where are we at if we have AstraZeneca in Australia as the generalised vaccine to use in our particular setting? Apparently we only have about 10 million doses available as Pfizer. That would be about 5 million people and some suggestion that go to old people initially first. What is she saying about herd immunity? Is she correct? What's the argument there in terms of vaccinated herd immunity for Australia specifically? And on, I guess, by extrapolation in New Zealand too. It's important to know what efficacy is. It's derived from the phase three trials. In the case of the Pfizer vaccine, for instance, they did a trial that involved more than 43,000 people. Half of them got the vaccine, half received the placebo. And they ended up with 170 cases of infection with the virus. 162 of those, 95%, were in the placebo arm and eight were in the vaccine arm, hence 95% efficacy. The Moderna one is more or less identical. The findings for the Oxford's AstraZeneca vaccine were odd, and, and it was partly because they did a series of trials and then tried under different circumstances and in different countries and then tried to combine them in various ways. But it's at least more than 60% efficacious and maybe better than that. We don't know what accounts, at least I don't anyway, know what accounts for the variability that we have seen in the capacity of the vaccines to deliver different levels of efficacy. But the use of the AstraZeneca is still going to produce a high level of immunity. And one of the things that we want to do is reduce the incidence of severe disease and the All of the vaccines have done well with severe disease. It might be that we need to vaccinate a huge proportion of the population, and I've got some thoughts about that. But I'm less convinced that using the AstraZeneca vaccine will will run us into problems. It's one of those confused scientific slash political slash policy arguments that is going to be resolved in some kind of fairly empirical manner, I suspect. And people can say what they want to say, and we'll have to measure what the impact is. Not necessarily comforting, I suppose. We're talking about efficacy, but the other one that really belies this general feeling that if we just all get vaccinated, the pandemic will be over. I think fewer and fewer people now are actually believing that. Dr. Norman Swan, one of our leading health specialist journalists here, he works for the ABC, runs an excellent podcast on the pandemic and appears often in our current affairs programs. Caught him again the other night on the 7.30 show here in Australia. And he was pretty explicit again, whether it's the Oxford vaccine or whether it's Pfizer, whether they'll stop transmission of the disease. It's one thing to ameliorate the symptoms of the disease. It's another thing to stop transmission, which seems to me to sit at the very heart of of shutting down the pandemic. These vaccines, certainly in their early iterations, in the first wave of vaccines, will not necessarily stop transmission of the disease. This is a key issue. To be sure whether vaccines prevent transmission, we need one of two important sources of data. Post-vaccine epidemiologic data or a better understanding of some aspects of the immune response, or both. And at the moment, we have neither. But there's also a great deal we don't know about the immune system. And the question of transmission after vaccination wanders into that knowledge desert. Let's just track back to how vaccines work. They fool the immune system into making antibodies to an organism, here SARS-CoV-2, before it ever sees an infection with that organism. These antibodies defend us against the real virus when it invades, overwhelming the virus before it reproduces enough times to result in a full-blown infection. However, the antibody profile that the vaccine produces is not quite the same as the profile that results from the natural infection. The current vaccines produce a response in our immune system that involves 
production of a class of antibodies called immunoglobulin G, IgG antibodies. These are the major warriors that act swiftly to protect us against a wide variety of invading organisms. They constitute the majority of our antibodies, but they exist largely in organ systems that don't normally have contact with the outside world, muscles, blood. To prevent transmission of the virus, we need antibodies that guard our mucosal surfaces, the surfaces that face outwards to the world, mouth, nose, throat, lung, gastrointestinal tract. These are immunoglobulin A, IgA antibodies. And to this point, we do not know how well the existing vaccines produce IgA antibodies. People who are infected with SARS-CoV-2 and then recover produce IgA antibodies in large quantities. Because these IgA antibodies live in the same mucosal systems as the virus does, the respiratory tract surface particularly, it's reasonable to expect that people who recover from COVID-19 no longer spread the virus. What we don't know is whether people who have vaccine-induced IgG antibodies stop the virus from spreading. The data from the vaccine trials give us some relevant data. They show that the vaccine stops at least some viral replication, enough to reduce the likelihood of illness to very low levels and severe illness to almost zero. So it makes sense that any vaccinated person is likely to spread a lower dose of the virus into the environment and possibly for a shorter time and thus plausibly reduce the risk of transmission to susceptible people. Nonetheless, it's speculation. What we need, in addition to a better understanding of immune responses, and God knows that might take years, what we need is our data on the impact on community spread as the vaccine is rolled out. As more and more people are vaccinated, epidemiologic data should tell us whether and how fast case numbers start to fall. It will not be a perfect indicator because, as we know, there are other public health actions that can slow transmission. We've discussed these. But it should give us clues about emerging herd immunity. This kind of surveillance needs a proper register of the vaccinated and the continued close monitoring of community transmission with testing and tracing. So, John, to bring it right back to the individual and openly and overtly selfish level, let's take me, for example. Say I finish up getting the AstraZeneca vaccination, which at the moment looks like it could be around about 60% efficacy. Now, as you will know, I love to travel to Africa to do wildlife photography, and we were supposed to go last year, and we had to stop that because of the pandemic. I don't think at the moment that I could get vaccinated and remain very confident that I could then just go blithely into environments where the pandemic is still raging and the infections are pretty widespread. It's not going to be a silver bullet. It's not going to give me some sort of epidemiological armour, is it, being vaccinated? It's a matter of confidence, risk analysis and assessment, I suppose. Yes, I think that's right. I think people will make different decisions and based on a different understanding of the degree of risk they face, what they want to do, what aims they have for their travel. But I can imagine that it will seriously inhibit a lot of action and a lot of activity of that sort. It's one thing, John, as you well know, to get these vaccines off the production line and out there into the distribution centres and all the logistics involved. But we're also seeing, particularly in the United States, where you worked for many years, Dr. Fauci, their leading man there, said the other day that the rollout is just not happening fast enough. We're seeing enormous lags in the United States for a whole lot of different reasons. But we're seeing the same problems elsewhere, aren't we? And of course, we haven't even started in Australia yet, though they've brought the rollout a little bit forward. But we will be seeing that shortly. And as I understand it, they're going to be doing it in such a way as they can really track and monitor each vaccination that takes place so they can do some of that assessment you described earlier. What's the main problem, as you see it, getting the vaccine into the arms of, say, Americans? Peter, your observations on this are every bit as valid as mine. I, I see the key impediments as, in the US at least, monumental failure of leadership, a complete breakdown in the communication between the federal and state governments, widespread malaise 
among people and the body politic, there's an extraordinary failure to appreciate just how serious this pandemic is, 400,000 deaths and over 20 million cases. And there's a lot of denial still, which is extraordinary to me. I don't know why we are having such problems with the rollout of vaccination programs. There are places that are doing it reasonably well. And you'd expect the US to be right up there. It's not. One of our nearest neighbours, Indonesia, is in fact relying on the Chinese vaccine. And of course, we also have the Russian vaccine. Interested to hear your comments on how much we know about those vaccines in terms of efficacy and safety. But Indonesia has a different set of problems. It has a very large Muslim population. There's a bit of a cultural resistance to vaccines generally. The measles vaccine apparently had some sort of pork element in some form, whether it was the DNA, etc. If the vaccine can't be identified as clearly halal, there's obviously a resistance to it in a in a largely Muslim country. So it's not just political, there are all sorts of other cultural and even religious resistances to such a big country as Indonesia with that vast archipelago getting their vaccination program sorted. Yeah, and you started with thinking about the, the Chinese and the Russian vaccines, and they are certainly being deployed. The Chinese one, for instance, is being deployed in Turkey and Indonesia, and then trials have been going on in Brazil as well. The full testing, however, of the Russian, the Chinese, the Indian vaccines, full phase three trials do not seem to have been done. The rigor of the trials that have just gone on with the Sino vaccine in Turkey, Indonesia, and Brazil, it's intriguing because the results vary from about 50% efficacy to over 90% in those three countries. And the rigor of these trials is just not clear. So I think we'll learn more about the efficacy of these vaccines from observations across the vaccinated populations. And that requires really good post-delivery surveillance infrastructure. The resistance, which we're going to see in the United States for the political reasons, and perhaps in other places, and you've mentioned Indonesia for religious reasons, and there may be other impediments to the distribution, resistance among the population. It just adds to the problem of getting that vaccine out because if you look at the rate at which the pandemic is spreading in the UK, South Africa, and in Brazil, you realize that it seems extremely likely that a huge proportion of the population is going to get infected before we ever get to the point where we're getting a vaccine. And that means a massive number of deaths, which is what we're seeing. So impediments everywhere. And each individual country has to extend its capacity for, for leadership and team building and as well as the efficiency and technologic efficiency in the delivery of the vaccine out to the community. John, it seems to me to be an ethics and economic and political and social minefield. We're not only seeing the rich countries at the moment buying up about 50% of the available vaccine doses, and you can just start to imagine all the political and economic pushing and shoving going on there. But we're also seeing across all our jurisdictions, including New Zealand and Australia, differing priorities as to who gets the vaccine first. Is it the elderly? We saw those early marketing style shots in the UK of people getting the very first vaccines. They're all old codgers. Other arguments are for young people to get the vaccine. Others are for health workers and frontline workers and all sorts of other arguments, teachers, etc. I'm seeing an incredible mosaic of responses as to who gets the vaccine first. What are epidemiologists generally saying about the optimal set of priorities as to who gets the vaccines first? The most exposed are the folks who are running your border control, the folks who are running your quarantine and isolation management places, your folks who are working in ports and airports. That's sort of the outward facing group in any country. And they should be high on the list because they're the ones who are, even with the kind of border controls that we've got in New Zealand, you've got in Australia, that's where the risk is going to come from. So having those folks protected makes the biggest sense. Then you want to talk about the vulnerable folks, because we've seen mortality in nursing homes, old people's homes, whatever you want to call them, go through the roof in lots of places. 
And then you've got some age barrier. You can say 70 over 65 over 80, whatever. I mean, set some priorities that have to do with that. And then you, you also want to protect people who are at higher risk because they've got a bunch of other disorders and diseases. And then you might want to pay special attention to people who are at risk because they are in indigenous populations or because they are in underserved populations whose health is necessarily, historically anyway, I don't mean necessarily in the sense that they deserve it, I mean necessarily because that's what's happened, necessarily at higher risk, um, and you should, should go for them. The general population comes, comes after that, if you like. I don't know if you agree with me, John, but I'm seeing Australia and New Zealand now as almost fortresses in a sea of a pandemic. Recently, as you doubtless saw, we're toughening up things here in Australia. We're requiring negative testing before you got on an aircraft to fly into Australia. We're toughening up on air crew in terms of their quarantine, generally looking at our quarantine processes and protocols, our obvious weak spot and toughening all those up. Now add the vaccine rollout, which is coming up fairly shortly here in Australia. Am I right in saying that we're in a much better position because we've got basically zero community transmission going on across this country and in New Zealand where you're living as well, and that our vaccine programs will have a a head start in a way? Yeah, I think that's right. But the way to roll that out is as part of a complete package. So we need extensive and continuing education on the value of vaccination because there's resistance. We need a continuing reminder that for the foreseeable future, our protection will lie in the public health measures, the border control, the isolation and quarantine, masks, hand hygiene, distancing. In here, we will also need a proper registry so that people can be followed up for the second shot, followed up for unwanted effects, followed up for the effectiveness of the vaccine and included in that will be the possibility that there may be long-term consequences that are a bit like the long COVID. Is that going to be a problem for the vaccine? Don't know. But the same kind of process can be put in place to monitor both those who've been infected and those who've been vaccinated. And then we need continued research into the virus and its variants and improving vaccines so that they're not so reliant on cold chains that we're seeing associated with the early vaccines. And then finally, something like acute awareness at all times, and this is for the politicians, for the population at a whole, acute awareness that this may be just the first of a series of pandemics. We shouldn't be so absorbed with this one that we think there will be no other. That's really important in all of this as well. I want to talk about testing before we wind up this particular conversation, this update on the pandemic. I was a bit shocked. I bumped into some neighbours just the other day. I was out the front and they walked past with their dogs and said hi. And very quickly, our conversation turned to the pandemic. And I discovered almost to my horror that both these people who lived three doors away probably had COVID. And they were part of a cluster here known as the Eagle Bar Cluster, which was just down the road here in the Eaglemont Village. And it was well publicised because one of the musicians playing at a birthday party there was a music teacher at a school which finished up taking it across town to a school and shutting that school down. This is way back in March. This is in the early stages of the, of the pandemic. And I said to my neighbour, oh, did you go and get tested? And he said, oh, yeah, I tried to get tested. I'm pretty sure I had COVID and I'm pretty sure my wife had COVID, but no, we never got tested. They wouldn't test us because we didn't have a clear contact point or something like that. And I'm thinking, you didn't get tested. And I remember another member of my family had to go and get tested and had to push really hard to get tested in those early days. Now I'm hearing authorities say, with the various ways that they're dealing with it, they're saying things like, if you have even mild symptoms, come and get tested which number one I see is a shift in the general message going out. But it does raise with me that other big issue, which is what about the asymptomatic sufferers of the virus? Why are they still saying to us, if you've got symptoms, mild symptoms, any doubts, come and get tested? So that's a shift. But what about the asymptomatics? There have been improvements in the way in which COVID testing can be done. And as you said, first of all, there's a sort of policy shift But there's been technologic shifts as well. 
disrupting the community transmission chains really requires rapid identification and isolation of people who are infectious. And this is going to be even more so if we end up with one of these variants loose. Maybe as many as 40% of infected people don't have symptoms, even though they carry high levels of the virus. So standard testing poses a whole lot of barriers to its effective use in controlling an epidemic, even when it's kind of widespread, because you tend to test just people who are symptomatic. You have long turnaround times. And then in many places, there are structural barriers. Amount of time people have to go get a test, health insurance in some places, language barriers in some places, distance to testing sites remote from communities in need. There's a whole lot of those things. One of the things that can resolve some of that is rapid testing. So these are rapid antigen tests rather than RT-PCR tests. So this accurate performance in the field of a rapid antigen test can address the barriers that we've just been talking about and increase the identification of the most infectious people. Such tests could permit rapid identification and isolation of people with high levels of the virus disrupting chains, transmission chains, before they develop symptoms. There is one one such test that's been trialed in the Mission District of San Francisco, and it showed a sensitivity of up to 100% compared with the RT-PCR, depended a bit on how they did the PCR cycles. And specificity was 99.9%. So it, this, is, this is a very accurate test in both false positive, false negatives. Performance wasn't influenced by age or the respondents or the presence or absence of symptoms. So the major benefit of using that sort of rapid antigen test is the speed with which the results are being returned one hour from walk-up registration to the return of results. This is just a a beginning. At the moment, as you mentioned, the requirement in New Zealand, and we we talked about this earlier, negative tests in the previous 72 hours, a one-hour test looks like it's ready to be deployed. There is at least one. I don't know enough about the logistics and the scaling up to say how soon it could be available but it now looks like an implementation problem, not a bioscience problem. And the advantage is you could do it rapidly across whole populations. Anywhere there's a worry or a hotspot, you can just go. One-hour tests available. Who gets tested and who gets missed becomes moot. Test everyone who's willing and able when the need arises. And we get there. The more you can narrow down that time frame, the better it is, isn't it? Because someone could get a a negative test before getting on a Qantas flight to come to Australia and, of course, get infected on the plane or wherever. But, of course, we've still got our quarantine and our regular testing there. So testing suddenly is becoming even more important rather than less important in the whole mosaic of both prevention and ongoing management of the pandemic. If we're able to deploy these sorts of tests, we will have a lot better control of the the spread because of that rapid detection, rapid capacity to isolate, rapid capacity to treat. It may be that we evolve some early treatments that will be useful. So I see this as, as being a really key part. We're already doing testing and tracing as being a really key part of monitoring it. I think the faster we can get the tests, the better because we'll end up with this better control, particularly with these rapidly spreading variants. I remember you and I, and it was generally out there very early on in the pandemic about asymptomatics, and that percentage you just threw at us is quite scary, isn't it? So many of our fellow citizens walking around with COVID who are asymptomatic and are infecting other people. Is that a whole area that it's just too difficult to handle? How do epidemiologists confront the asymptomatics? It's still a, a really knotty and key problem. Yeah, but if if the sensitivity and specificity of this test hold up in other settings and with other tests, deployment should begin to be a relatively easy problem. And then people can do some testing at home if they think they're at risk or they think they even got the vaguest sniffle. A home test that works you know, a bit like a pregnancy test for the worried well, so to speak. But for the population as a whole, we need rapid and, and widespread testing capacity 
irrespective of symptoms, associated with the careful tracing of contacts, and always paying attention to the things we've already been talking about, public health measures, border control, isolation, quarantine, masks, hand hygiene and distancing. They're all part of the same package. And we can improve the technology in the same way that we can improve the risk with vaccines. We can improve the technology of testing so that we've got a better handle on what's going on at the population level as well. Did you see that some gorillas were identified as having COVID the other day in a United States zoo? This opens up again. You and I have touched on this before. The source of this particular virus out of the wild animal population, our companion animals, the likelihood of another pandemic-style virus coming into our societies. Beyond all the things you've just outlined, of course, we're still facing that same problem, aren't we? Wild animal populations and crossing between species and something even more horrific coming out of the, the darkness of the jungles or the deserts or wherever. As we have continued to exploit the resources in the world, we continue to intrude on the natural domain of wild animals. That's how we ended up with Ebola. It's almost certainly how we ended up with the coronavirus that causes the COVID pandemic. And it remains a risk because we don't seem to have learned that that's something we need to start paying attention to right now. And then, as you mentioned, the risk is not only that we can inherit something from wild animals and domesticate it in ourselves, we can then potentially domesticate it in our companion animals as well. And it's been seen, and you know, that there were these massive culls of minks, which were commercial, not pets, but we've seen infection in dogs and cats. And as you mentioned, in gorillas, the gorillas didn't get very sick. So they may be more resistant and we may learn something from that. But the problem of the potential for a secondary animal reservoir persists as long as we have got this virus running around in our communities. Well, John, finally, let's just wind the clock back to some of our earlier conversations. I'm going to ask you some very similar questions again about the comparative rates of infection and mortality around the world. Of course, the Northern Hemisphere has been enduring a a dire winter. The United Kingdom, across Europe and across the United States, Brazil, you mentioned, Africa, of course, and various Asian countries have actually been doing better than some of those big developed countries. And we've pointed to some of the reasons why the United States, for example, seems to be out of control. But the comparative infection rates, and whether we argue that it's a wave or another iteration or a continuation of the pandemic in places like France, Italy, the United Kingdom, I'll ask you the same question again. Is this the beginning of the pandemic, just past the beginning of the pandemic? Where are we heading with this pandemic? Crystal ball stuff. I can imagine huge improvements in the numbers with widespread vaccination, with greater attention to the possibility of elimination strategies, even at this late stage, because it's clear that the countries that have pursued elimination strategies, Australia and New Zealand being two of them, but Taiwan, China, Vietnam, have done way better in terms of case numbers and mortality. So greater attention to the possibility of elimination strategies, even at this late stage, and then continuing and improving the tightly applied public health measures that we've already talked about. It's going to take several years, even with a good strategy and and everybody moving in the right direction. I can also imagine the emergence of a new variant that escapes immune responses and even an entirely different pandemic emerging before this one is even contained. And that's all against the background of the other global problems we're confronting. I think... We remain in dark, dangerous, unknown territory. And while the vaccines are really an important part of how we deal with this, to date, as a supposedly sentient species, I would say we're not doing very well. John Potter, thank you so much for coming back into the Transit Zone and this very necessary update about vaccines and variants around the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. It's been an honour. New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. You can learn more about John and his research in the on-screen text with this podcast, plus many useful links to good quality coronavirus information. And we'll update those as new research emerges and pandemic events occur.
All four Pandemic Primer podcasts in the Transit Zone are now available for your listening. In total, four hours of information-rich audio journalism. And we really hope it adds to your understanding of the virus itself and the scope and reach of the pandemic and enriches your consumption of all the other information in general journalism, specialist scientific research and the inevitable polemics and propaganda abounding in our crowded mediascape. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.